name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. Derivatives play a vital role in enabling firms to alleviate uncertainty, transfer risk, and enhance profitability. To give just a couple of examples, companies use derivatives to lock in the cost of issuing debt to finance new investments. Exporters use derivatives to create certainty in the exchange rate at which they can convert future overseas revenues. And banks use derivatives to manage the risk from their loan books, enabling them to keep on lending. In each case, the certainty that derivatives bring give those firms the confidence to lend, borrow or invest, all of which contributes to economic growth. But being able to hedge effectively shouldn't just be the preserve of the biggest financial markets. Having an efficient, robust and liquid local currency derivatives market is equally important in emerging market and developing economies, giving firms in those countries the same opportunities to manage their risk and cost-effectively access capital. The question is, how should authorities in developing economies go about building safe and efficient local currency derivatives markets? How much of a priority should this be? And what needs to come first? In this episode, we'll look at why the development of derivatives markets in emerging economies is important and the legal, regulatory and risk management issues that authorities in these jurisdictions can consider. Joining me as per usual is ISDA's CEO, Scott O'Malia. Scott, perhaps you can start by explaining why we're looking at this issue. Well, I think you nailed it in your intro. Most people are listening to this podcast will know that ISDA has long focused on helping jurisdictions across the world build the foundations for effective risk management and hedging. And that leads to capital fundraising and local economy development. A big focus for us has been the work with local authorities to develop appropriate netting legislation, which we think is the essential prerequisite for a robust liquid derivatives market in any country. So far, we've published netting opinions in over 80 jurisdictions, and we continue to expand the number of countries that recognize the enforceability of closeout netting. But this is just the first step. There are a whole host of legal, regulatory, and risk management issues that also need to be considered. Last month, we published a survey of 44 emerging markets and developing economies to get a clear picture of the state of play in each market, which enabled us to develop a set of recommendations for how policymakers should approach the key issues. Mindful that each of these countries are on their own journey and we have to address them individually. So understanding where everybody is on their baseline is is essential. And then we apply the appropriate attention and focus to each country. We've also engaged with IOSCO and various international financial institutions to support their work to nurture developing economies. So this continues to be an important focus for us and I think well worth our time and effort. Okay, great. I'm pleased to say we have a couple of terrific guests who work closely with emerging market and developing economies and will be able to give us a really good insight into what it takes to develop robust derivatives markets and why that's important. We have Axel van Niederveen, an ISDA board member and managing director and treasurer of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and Romina Lopez-Martinez, co-chair of ISDA's Latin America Committee and Senior Vice President at Frontclear, a financial markets development company. So let's bring them on. Romina Axel, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. Thanks, Scott. Happy to be here. Okay, I'd like to start by asking your perspective on the role of derivatives in emerging market and developing economies. How important is the development of local currency over-the-counter derivative markets in these emerging markets And where should it sit in the priority list as authorities look to develop their local financial markets? Axel, let's start with you. 
Of course, by definition, I'm going to say it's going to be very important. But the reason, in a way, is when you look at most of the, it's called the compositions of the financial systems in emerging markets, they tend to be bank-dominated. Bank-dominated without any actual means to manage, let's call it the interest risk or the effects risk that could be embedded in their balance sheets. Now, historically, the, let's call it the developing community has always focused on trying to build life through building out the government bond market first. The problem in the emerging market is that effectively, in order to trade and manage a government bond market, you need to be aware of its liquidity risk, credit risk, the ability to repo, as well as secondary market activity. Whereas the beauty of a derivative is that you actually you can separate out, let's call it the different underlying risks into different components. Therefore, by developing an interest rate derivative market, you can very quickly at least get to an understanding as to what the price of money is over time, i.e. how to build a yield curve, which is much simpler to do through a derivative rather than through a cash market. And that is, as a concept, is relatively new, and that's something that we're trying to push quite hard in the EBRD, its countries of operation. Thank you. Romina? Well, swap markets should be high priority alongside with repo markets as the corner store of the local systems and money markets. They are key to facilitate trade finance, bank stability, and monetary policy transmission. Romina, what challenges do emerging market governments and financial institutions face in managing their risks? Can you give some examples of how derivatives are contributing to the development of emerging market financial systems and economies? Emerging market governments have either issue debt in U.S. dollars and take on currency risk or issue debt locally, but then they're constrained by domestic saving pools uh, unless foreign investors can use swaps to hedge currency risk. Derivatives can help facilitate foreign investment in local uh, debt issuance. Dollar debt issuance is a critical issue, and we have seen time and time again since COVID, for example, and, and the war in Ukraine, a large portion of emerging markets have lost access to international markets. Axel, what are your thoughts on this? Well, the most important thing is, of course, basically, the government needs to be able to finance in, let's call it, in the right currency, in the right framework. For that borrowing, it needs to be able to rely on an investor base. Most of the financial systems that we work in, in the emerging markets, are, let's call it, heavily bank-dominated, meaning 90 to 95% of the financial system consists of banks. If banks can't manage the interest rate risk that is embedded in them buying government bonds, then by definition, they're going to basically charge, let's call it, an uncertainty premium, to say the least, with regards to being able, basically having to buy longer dated debt. The second problem that comes in, and then you can almost like relate it back to what happened to SVB in the US, is that if the banks can't manage the interest rate risk associated with the long dated fixed rate assets on their book, then yes, you can hide it into the health to maturity buckets, but once you have extreme market moves, you not just get the freezing of the market, you also get potentially a questioning about the solidity of the financial system. Therefore, if you're not able to manage the financial risks on your balance sheet as an institution and as 
you become less stable, but also the entire system becomes potentially less stable. And we really see that derivatives are a core part of almost like increasing, let's call it the risk management capacity within the system, which often itself should have major financial stability, positive impacts. Now, you both mentioned in that previous question, Romina mentioned kind of access to capital, and you talked about risk management. Obviously, the mobilization of capital is essential to economic growth. I appreciate each country's on its own journey in the development and each economy is unique, but what steps can emerging markets take to set that foundation that will help them access international capital flows? Axel, let's start with you. Well, the core part, of course, is first, you need to get to what we would describe as the acceptance of the local currencies as a means of savings. So for that, you need to have a stable macro framework, not just a fiscal framework, but particularly also a monetary policy framework. And it's, again, it's the beauty of basically having a, let's say, inflation targeting framework, then it's the interest rate targeting becomes the core. In order to develop that, again, it's the interest rate derivatives market sort of that gets you there. What are the things you need to start to work on is, A, therefore, make sure that your multi-policy framework is correct. Then, almost like as a next necessary step is, of course, is benchmark reform. And one of the beauties of the implementation of SOFA, SONIA, i.e. the risk-free reference rates that we've built in dollars and sterling, we are now in a world where it actually is possible for an emerging market to create a benchmark that is, is viable, sensible, and can actually can be used as the anchoring mechanism for the floating leg of an interest rate derivative. So we now have the, actually the core components there to make it work. And yes, you will, of course, need legal reform, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the first steps are really sort of the easy bits that, or I'd call them the essential bits, because it's once you build the trust in and an understanding of what the domestic interest rate is, it also becomes easier for a foreign investor to make rational decisions whether you want to become involved here or not. Fantastic. Romina, what are the foundations you think are important? I think countries need to focus on domestic financial markets right and getting the basics right, which is like repo and swap markets first. So sometimes what happens is the swap markets beyond legal issues that Axel mentioned and that we're going to talk afterwards is the onshore leg being the local banks and other financial institutions they see the credit risk is an issue for international counterparties. So sometimes local counterparties don't have eligible collateral, and then local markets also often are disconnected with uh, local CDSs, local cash accounts requirements being sometimes too onerous. So until that jurisdiction has the legal reforms in place, it can create some issues for international counterparties to participate in those markets. I'd like to kind of unpack that a little bit. What are the alternatives if a country doesn't have eligible collateral? What do they do? Are they going to have to borrow dollars? Yeah, they have to either go to international markets and issue in dollars, and that becomes a problem unless the local collateral can be taken as collateral. But that sometimes also creates issues in terms of uh, how to register ownership or custodian issues that we've seen in many countries in, in emerging markets. Okay. Now, ISDA recently published a survey that explored key legal, regulatory, and risk management issues in derivative markets in 44 emerging markets. 
around the world. And we've been working closely with IOSCO and various international financial institutions to build capacity in emerging markets. What do you see as the priority areas when it comes to developing local derivative markets? And to what extent do these priority areas differ depending on the stage of development uh, development in each emerging market? Axel, do you want to start with us? So remember what we said in the earlier example. Now, a second stage, of course, is because you can start an embryonic interest rate derivative or effects swap market just on the back of, let's call it, long-form confirmations and at least still the ability to do certain levels at growth settlement. But if you really want to, let's call it, enhance the capacity of the local system to trade derivatives, therefore, of course, legal reform, close-out netting, as well as the enforceability of collateral in the bankruptcy will become an important element to really scale up the capacity of the business, as well as being able to make the connections with offshore. Because one of the problems that we've created by the international regulatory framework has become actually much more difficult for developed market banks to cross borders without hitting their own regulatory boundaries that they're being imposed on the front let's say, that domestic regulator's perspective. And it's made life more difficult. The second thing that's actually extremely important is we need to develop a regulatory framework in the domestic market as to how to regulate the local derivatives market. And that is actually quite a problem because there is almost like at the moment, there is no best practice or there's no framework as to how to do it. And therefore, you see in a lot of markets that either they make the mistake that everything has to go exchange traded because they have an exchange with nothing trading, so they need to find something to put on it, or because they feel that it's open, transparent, and something they can control. Whereas the beauty of an over-the-counter derivatives market is that actually you can tailor make things to what the end client needs rather than what happens to be available. So for me, therefore, the core is legal reform and a regulatory framework that allows, therefore, derivatives is clear as to what it is and what types of derivatives as well as what types of counterparties can do. And at the same time, that's another debate that we always have is speculation is not speculation, is not an evil thing. It is a necessary component of liquidity provision in risk markets. And that's sometimes the most difficult debate to have. Yeah. Romina, anything you want to add to that based on your experience in market development? Of course, legal reform needs to happen. But again, when we are on the ground and trying to identify what needs to be done, of course, the first challenge is that in most of the cases in emerging market, it has to go to Congress. So identifying the right stakeholders locally to start pushing for legal reforms is the first challenge that we come across. Then again, trying to follow all of the rules that have been done in developed countries does not necessarily work because of the size of the local market. So we should be very careful in how we amend the laws. And there's also, in many cases, the, the concern of the effects in the countries that they don't want to open up to some legal reforms that might affect the way the currency is working locally if they have it under control. But more and more, the emerging market jurisdictions, with the help of ISDA, Frontier, other institutions that go to the ground and explain 
the need for close out netting as a starting point for developing the, the markets locally. If that doesn't happen, it creates problems in, in terms of cost of trading and sometimes even trading with international counterparties. Okay, you've both talked about this legal foundation. It's pretty important. So let's unpack that a little bit. Romina, ISDA has always been clear that safe and efficient derivative markets depend on robust legal foundations. And this starts with the recognition of the enforceability of closeout netting, as you mentioned. How does netting benefit markets and market participants in order to remove barriers to growth? And what other legal issues need to be considered and addressed in setting this foundation? To begin with, closeout netting, because the exposure that the market participants have changes dramatically. By having closeout netting, the market participants, say the banks, have more credit to be used to other real economy sectors, right, by having a closeout netting. Then, of course, there is transparency in the markets, how transactions need to be monitored by local regulators. And what we've seen also is that by imposing, for example, registration requirements, we need to be careful in how to do it. We've seen many emerging market jurisdictions having registration as part of a condition for closeout netting. And that has been problematic because if that relies on the local market participant, then the international counterparties don't have control. So they don't feel that they have closeout netting for purposes of their own capital adequacy benefits. So then again, also the size in the markets, in the emerging markets, can't have, for example, that many requirements for mandatory clearing or electronic platforms trading. So it's very important that when we look at all the local regulations, we just identify what needs to be amended and what can wait for a second step when the market grows. We've seen also situations where we have to start from the very beginning, for example, in terms of enforceability of a derivative transaction. Now, there are gaming laws, for example, that might be in place, and we need to make sure that those laws or insurance laws don't apply to derivative transactions and repo transactions. So I think I would say that it's starting from the very beginning, from having laws or regulations that allow a derivative or a repo transaction to enter into in the jurisdiction, then having closeout netting, and then for the rest, being very careful in what applies or doesn't apply for an emerging market instead of just copying what has been done in developed markets. Now, Axel, Ramina has established that closeout netting and bankruptcy reform is absolutely table stakes when it comes to market development. Why is that important? And what other legal questions need to be answered? Why, in a sense, I think is relatively simple. Otherwise, you can't scale. Because very quickly, let's say the gross exposures will just explode to such levels that basically lines will absolutely get clogged up. So that's relatively simple. One of the things that I think a lot of countries sometimes forget is, is that, of course, it's a cross-border legal framework. But a lot of the time we've seen in countries that you also need to develop a local law-based ISDA for the very simple reason that two domestic counterparties cannot transact with each other under a foreign law. 
that's the case in quite a number of countries that we work in. So that's just one little add-on. The other thing that I sort of yeah want to say something that for certainly I think for markets that are in the beginning stages, secured financing transactions are now covered under ISD as well. So effectively now under a single master agreement, you can trade both repo or repo-like transactions as well as derivatives. Which certainly for markets, instead of having to negotiate two separate legal frameworks, you can actually do it under a single one. So that's a little poster for ISDA, because it certainly would make starting life a lot simpler. But as I said, local ISDA is the thing that a lot of people forget about. And at the end of the day, the core of the domestic liquidity will always be driven by domestic counterparties. Foreigners are always, let's call it the cherry on the cake, rather than that they are the cake. And without the netting, you're just not going to bring in that cherry, so to speak. Yes, exactly. It's also important to keep in mind that when we're speaking about close-out netting, we're speaking about netting of transactions, but also netting of collateral. And more and more because that in developed countries, variation margin and initial margin has become mandatory. And eventually, even though there are exceptions for countries that don't have close-out netting, it creates an issue if you cannot net collateral benefits too. That's a great point. You've both talked about this regulatory paradigm, and obviously we have a well-established derivatives regulatory regime post-financial crisis. The regulatory reforms consistent with Pittsburgh came in. And Romina, you've mentioned it in your earlier answers, this transition and thinking about what the right balance is. We have the requirements for trade execution, you just mentioned the initial margin rules for non-cleared trades. There's the clearing requirements. And I think there's some challenges with implementing clearing in very small jurisdictions or early stage markets that would be challenging. Most countries are probably, they want to make the FSB checklist. They want to be fully compliant with FSB regulations and IOSCO regulations and following other jurisdictions. Is that always appropriate? in each of these jurisdictions and how should countries think about maybe phasing some of these things in there? Romina, you want to pick that one up? In our experience working in, in emerging markets, we've seen that each country is different and the way how you have to approach reform is also different. And you need to be flexible in the sense of trying to find a way of passing netting regulation that fits the country, right? So there are some countries where we've helped an interbank swap and repo market to develop as a starting point. And that is sometimes is the case because some emerging market jurisdictions don't need a law to be passed for close-out netting when it's financial institutions. They need regulation from the central bank. And in many cases, central banks are really willing to work on this and they work on the regulations, and then we start with having close-out netting for financial institutions, for example. So that is a starting point. And then for other counterparties like corporates, you need Congress and you need to pass a law. Also, the things that we've experienced is that through the years, even when we have achieved reform, then bankruptcy laws get amended again for other reasons, and then maybe they might create again some issues in terms of how close-out netting is interpreted by creating some stay periods that go beyond what is accepted in the market in general, right? And then we had to 
go again and try to find a solution for that. So close on and still recognize internationally for that jurisdiction. Something else that we've seen, for example, is uh, that in some countries, as Axel said, first trying to create the liquidity internally in the jurisdiction uh, has been achieved either by the drafting of local law agreements, most of them based on some, to some extent, on ISA. And at the committee, we've been working on also helping uh, these jurisdictions have the proper local law agreements through, for example, working with the Bankers Association. So it's just thinking with more flexibility on how to adapt what has been done by developed markets and make it applicable locally, taking into account the limitations that we might find until the markets developed further. Axel, in your experience, is it appropriate for all emerging markets to copy and paste what's been done in the developing world? No. (laughs) No, because... Effectively, let's say the, the problem I almost have even with the frameworks been developed in, let's say, in the developed markets is we've now created the framework that effectively is so, I would call it so tightly coupled that every action has a reaction and there's almost like no buffering left within the system to allow it to actually accept shocks. And because everything is either centralized through the mandatory VM and IM in terms of cash, and then also the cash needs to be in the appropriate currency. If sometimes that isn't available or able to be raised at the right point in time, as we saw indirectly in the guilt crisis, you're actually creating negative vortexes that are, for me at least, purely a consequence of it now. For emerging markets, the way... I sort of certainly look at it. You need to be very careful what it is you choose and what to do when. The most important thing I'd almost say is you want to minimize the barriers to starting up a market. Because let's say a CCP is costly. Registration is another barrier. Trade reporting, all of these things are incremental costs. And if effectively the users don't necessarily even understand why it is they want to use derivatives. The only thing you're going to make certain is that nobody's going to try what it is they can do for them. So just be very careful, be very cognizant of, let's call it the cost-benefit analysis of every single bit of the regulatory framework or or the G20 or the Pittsburgh principles you want to bring in. Terrific, thank you. Now, many emerging markets are heavily reliant on U.S. dollar funding, and Ramina touched on this earlier. But a global shortage of U.S. dollars on several occasions in recent years has had a knock-on impact on financial and economic stability. During the early days of the pandemic in 2020, for example, the Fed took steps to ease this strain by opening swap lines kind of after the crisis and establishing a temporary repo facility. What should be done to address this dependency on U.S. dollars in the long term for these countries? Axel? I think in very simple terms, basically, the U.S. should stop running a current account deficit and start running a current account surplus so they don't need to borrow from abroad, so they don't create these foreign, effectively, the dollar assets that then affect the current surplus account surplus countries need to use to invest their surpluses in. But setting that aside... I think, therefore, the key is sort of what we said. I think if every single domestic currency market basically 
can increase their own risk management capacity by developing a, let's call it a sound monetary policy framework, a sound banking system, as well as a sound use of derivatives, you're actually creating potentially much more what I call almost like little bufferings elements everywhere across the world. And therefore, shocks don't need to be translated one for one. Okay, Ramina, Axel's given us the ideal world. How do we live in the imperfect world? I would say that in the ideal world, also domestic population will be willing to save in their own currency. (laughs) The countries need to develop their own domestic local currency financial markets, as we said. This means having developed a repo and a bond market alongside with a derivatives market. And then if we get all stakeholders uh, to participate, banks, pension funds, asset managers, large corporates, And that also requires a lot of changes in the regulation of these entities that will create a vibrant local market and therefore it'll be less reliant on U.S. dollar funding. In the meantime, though, should we continue with the swap lines and is the emergency repo opportunities, are those essential until we get to this ideal state? Indirectly, I think one of the problems, again, let's say, so we've increased, let's call it the liquidity requirements of the banking system globally. So they've got much higher levels of global liquidity buffers. Just that the rules are such that you can't use that buffer, which basically means all you have is a bigger, let's call it, is a bigger barrier. But it doesn't mean that there's any shock absorption capacity in because none of the individual participants are allowed to break the rules. Given that, I think you can sort of see it. Part of the problem, of course, is that central banks are not in the business of taking credit risk on each other, which is why you could sort of see that indirectly the Fed had to step in through the repo market to try to say, I'm using your collateral and giving you liquidity for your collateral rather than actually saying there is a open swap line available. And historically, of course, that's it before the great financial crisis. In fact, all of that buffering happened in the private commercial banking space. They took effectively the cognizant decision that they could a, use their leverage capacity as well as the credit risk-taking capacity in order to do a lot of the cross-border buffering. If that's been restricted, then by definition, the public sector needs to step in. But in lots of ways, they're not really ready for it. Well, they hope they wouldn't have to step in with a safer system, but the reality is maybe they've reinforced that lender last resort requirement. I think that's almost like it's inevitable, basically. If you don't want to let any of the individual participants to use any of the extra buffering capacity until it's almost like too late, Because effectively, the Fed or the official sector will not react until there is a real problem, by which point in time, probably most financial markets will have already moved by quite a significant amount, creating their own knock-on effects. So this is where it's just unfortunate that effectively everything has been taken out of the hands of the private sector, and therefore everything is in the hands of the public sector, which by definition means basically the reaction function is slow. Therefore, the amount of, let's call it market breaks, is only going to go up rather than go down. I'd like to finish up by finding out a little bit more about each of you. How did you get into this field and what has been the most rewarding part of the journey? Romina? Well, I have a funny story to tell, I guess. End of 90s, I was a corporate securities lawyer at a big firm. 
And I had to work on uh, NISA for the first time because we needed it for as part of the transaction. And I drafted all these covenants that I would normally see in my other type of documents. And the person on the other side was an ESA negotiator. So I got that this is not ESA language. So I said, oh my God, what is this? And I said, I need to really, my goal was to learn what was ESA language. And from then on, I got very interested in derivatives. Through the years, I had the opportunity to work on different transactions that involved derivatives. And one day the opportunity came and I had a, an opportunity to join a bank and that was really uh, wanted to build an interest rate desk for Latin America. And that's how I started becoming an ISDA person. And I never again got that it wasn't ISDA language what I was <laughs> working on. So that's my story. Excellent. Axel? In the sense, I've always worked in fixed income. I became the treasurer of a development bank, let's put it that way, in 2004. And one of the first things that we sort of want to do is actually to create the ability for us to lend in local currency. Because most of the development banks, all that they've historically done is lend in dollars or euros to emerging economies, therefore, as one would describe, you're part of the problem rather than being part of the solution. So... As we started to want to build it out, actually, you start to find all the things that are wrong or different or difficult to implement. And therefore, on that road, you then started to actually think about, okay, what is it I need to do in order to be able to manage my balance sheet the way I would do it in dollars or in euros, as I would nowadays do it in Turkish lira or Egyptian pounds, you name it. Then, basically, we had the great financial crisis. It was a certainly a catalyst for me to to relook at everything I'd ever learned about markets and how to think about markets. And therefore, at the beginning, I was sort of trying to be sort of think about what it is they should do. When I sort of saw some of the solutions coming out, I basically I just stepped away saying this is not helpful. So I started to concentrate just on emerging markets and therefore how can we help them develop their system. So at the EBRD, we started. It's around 2010, so after the great financial crisis, also are what we call the Local Currency Local Capital Market Development Initiative. And as part of that, basically, I've been there for almost like this now, a 10 years plus journey in helping countries to go from where they were to some of them where they are now. And of course, along the way, we've had many a different crises, where it is the Crimean invasion, the Ukrainian invasion, the European debt crisis. So you've seen everything happen with fits and starts. But yeah, for me, the joy is actually sort of seeing how this you can keep on building things out and even being able to, let's say, help. I'd almost say one of the prime examples that we've done the most work is probably is in Georgia. Small country, three million people small open economy. Nevertheless, we've gotten to a stage where they have a monetary policy framework that works, they have a benchmark, they have, let's say, a banking system that start to understand actually how to transact with each other. We've implemented, let's say, risk-free reference rates. We've implemented, therefore, all the little bits that basically we've been talking about today. And we're slowly now starting to build out the financial system. But of course, things you find out is if you don't have a risk management system where you can't even book a trade, you can't start. And if you can't get that off the ground, how do you convince the C-suite that it actually is necessary? So 
these are some of the, what call it, the, the beautiful steps that you need to undertake. And I think indirectly, which is something that we always say is actually incredibly important, you need to have a national champion. And for somebody who's on the other side, who's willing to work, and not just for a year or two, but actually sees it as part of his own career or quote-unquote legacy, because it takes a long time. Yeah, I think this is a fascinating journey that you've both been on to provide development, encourage economic growth and in these emerging markets. It's, I suspect, a very long journey, but a very rewarding one at the end. So thank you very much for joining us today. It's been fascinating to speak with you and learn more about what the steps are to develop the emerging market economies and to develop the right foundation and the next steps needed to uh, grow these economies. Thank you very much for joining us on The Swap today. Scott, it was really interesting to hear the views of Ramina and Axel on why the development of derivatives markets in emerging market and developing economies is so important and the steps that authorities need to take to achieve this. But I wanted to circle back to the recent ISDA survey that you mentioned earlier. Can you briefly summarise some of the key recommendations of that? Of course. It's probably no surprise that we think legal certainty over enforceability of closeout netting is a crucial starting point. It's also important that legislation identify the areas of local law that could potentially conflict with the effectiveness of netting agreements and address those issues in the local legislation. We also think policymakers should allow a broad universe of counterparties with different business models and risk exposures to participate in derivative markets, including foreign counterparties, which was noted in the podcast today. That's because a wide range of participants with different exposures and objectives will increase liquidity and allow for risk to be reallocated among institutions in a most effective manner. Now, I'll mention one more, and it's important that authorities in emerging markets think carefully about which international regulatory standards they should implement. For example, mandatory clearing might not be appropriate in jurisdictions with relatively small derivative markets or exchange controls as that market might lack sufficient depth and liquidity for CCPs to effectively manage risk following a default. Yeah, interesting that a number of those points were brought up by our guests today as well. So that's positive. Okay, I should mention that the survey is available on the ISDA website. So please take the opportunity to read that. And if you're bored at the beach over the summer, take a look at our back catalogue of podcasts. And of course, look out for our forthcoming episodes. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.